And now, coming to you live from the Gershon Room, high above the Cook Street Motel 6, it's Jonathan Strand, looking kind of brick-walled on the video, on the audio, oh. and Gary K. Wolfhand on the, the Cook Street Podcast. And, and, and well-organized, as, as usual, we, we were discussing what we ought to talk about on the podcast and thought, well, why don't we just talk about it on the podcast and decide what we're going to do? <laughs> That's our lack of skill, without a doubt. Here's, here's, a, here's a thought. No, here's, there are two books. Yeah. And there are probably more like this. And we've been thinking, talking a lot, everybody's been talking about mixing genres and fantasy and science fiction don't necessarily make a distinction anymore. But there are other things that come into it, like you get magic realism brought into them. Mm-hmm. And there's a, it's not a new thing, but it's something I'm noticing, which I'm going to call absurdism in SF, where you write a serious, an otherwise serious fantasy novel and put in the middle of it a premise which is so off the wall and absurd that it's like you're daring yourself to write a good novel about that. And I will give you two examples. One, which as, one as as you know, is actually a, one of my favorite novels of the year so far. That was uh, Kelly Barnhill's When Women Were Dragons. It's a yes. terrific novel. Everything about it is terrific. In the middle of that novel is a completely absurd, unexplainable, unexplained transformation. It, it works mm-hmm. only as metaphor. Uh, it has nothing to do with the structure of the story around it, which is a very moving story about feminism and about a woman trying to find her identity in a difficult world. And it ends up being incorporated into the story where by the time you're done with the novel, you say, okay, yeah, there were dragons. Um, I feel like mm-hmm. Bill Murray, you know, in, uh, in Ghostbusters. Oh, she's a dog. Um, I just read another one, same kind of idea. And see if this, um, mm-hmm. this is called, this is um, Sunyi Dean's The Book Eaters. Okay. Yeah. Um, uh, and again, it's uh, it's very suspenseful. It's got a lot of uh, strengths. I'm I'm not going to say too much about it because I haven't actually written my review yet. But the central conceit in the book is literally what the title says. There are these race of the, the, the people who may not be human. Well, they aren't human. They may not be alien, but we don't know. Who eat books? They have special set of teeth to eat books. And when they eat books, they consume the contents. Of books. So if you want to know, I don't know the railway schedule. You eat the railway schedule. If you want to learn pharmacy, you eat a pharmacy book. That's the kind of thing that you used to see in the 1950s in what they call the theater of the absurd. Um, mm-hmm. It's it, it doesn't mean that it's, it's it doesn't make for an effective drama. And in fact, when I was reading the Kelly Barnhill novel, one of the things that occurred to me was a play I've actually seen on stage called Rhinoceros by Eugenie Inesco. Um, and Rhinoceros mm-hmm. is about a small town in maybe Romania. I'm not sure where it is. Where one by one people are turning into rhinoceroses just for as yeah. a parentheses for people who want to be pedantic it is rhinoceroses because it's not whatever it's not rhinoceros and once you accept that absurd premise then you th- th- then the play works and mm. in both of these novels it's almost as though the author is daring themselves uh to to make this work and i don't know if that's what they're yeah. thinking at all but it, in both cases i think they succeed now the question is are there other things like that that you can think of where it's just a completely yes. nonsensical idea, which somehow works if the author gets his or her or their head around it. Okay. Well, first of all, the thing that immediately came to mind, and I'm kind of surprised it did, uh, some years ago, Harlan Ellison did a collaborative book with Jacek Yurka. Yeah. It was called something like Mind Games, where he wrote short stories mind, based mind, around... Mind, field, mind, mind, mind Fields, field. I think it's called. And that had that kind of absurdist, sort of surreal kind of element to mm-hmm. it, where there would be some element juxtaposed into an otherwise 
um, ben, you know, sort of banal kind of mainstream sort of setting. Yeah, he was writing um, stories and, based on these paintings, which were themselves essentially surrealist paintings. Mm -hmm. So, and he wasn't trying to rationalize them. He was going into the world of that painting and writing usually very short stories. And that's not the same thing as somebody, I think, if I'm not mistaken, I think it was Ian Watson who wrote a novel which basically took place in the world of Hieronymus Bosch's Garden of Earthly Delights. But as I recall, there was a science fictional rationale for that in some ways. So yeah. you know, go, going into a magical world like that, um, I just think that it's, it's, it's a daring gesture, and it's the kind of thing that um, you used to see more often in this kind of semi-surrealistic, experimental, avant-garde mainstream literature than you did in, in genre literature. Um, and I, I'm thinking there must be a whole tradition of these things. It can't be that these novels I've read are the first ones. Well, in a way, in a way, is it a little bit like an extreme version of any situation where there's an incursion of the non-real into the real world? Because you know the entire sort of non-secondary world fantasy uh, situation, you know, setup of, you know, is yeah exactly like that in a way i mean not that it's quite as extreme an example but it, i mean wherever you're having fantasy and you know that comes into the real world whenever there's magic injected into the real world that is some kind of relative of what you're talking about surely it may not think, be as absurd i mean i've not read when women were dragons the kelly barnhill book but i know the actual i, mean, I get the i know the idea behind it and i can imagine that it's not that different even though it's maybe not quite so quite so clear and straightforward coherent um no, it's, I mean, and, and there, there are ways in which La Vie Tidar always skirts around this sort of thing. Um, and, and the escapement, for example, is anything can, he can pull anything out of that. But with, my point is, without rationalizing it, and the, and the escapement, the rationalization is that part of the novel is in the mind of a man who's in the hospital when his husband is dying. And it works very well. And a lot of psychological fantasies have worked that way. Uh, where you, you find out, okay, this is essentially in somebody's brain. Um, both of the novels I, I just talked about, this this is clearly not inside somebody's brain. This is clearly happening out in the world. Um, what about something like um, John Kessel's The Dark Ride, the novella? That's uh, the, the Dark Ride because of the part, part of it is pure historical research. Part of it is about yeah. Leon Sogos, who was assassinated sure. McKinley in Buffalo, New York in 1901. But there is a ride. I, I, I had to look this up after reading the novella. Uh, there was a ride called a dark ride, which was kind of like what, I don't know, Magic Mountain is at Disney. You go through these various things and end up going to the moon. And the moon in this ride was a version of H.G. Wells's First Men in the Moon. Only it turns then into a complete fantasy where yeah. he thinks he's saving a maiden from the grand lunar or whatever. And he's yeah. so all of his, but, but that's clearly also a portrait of a confused mind. You know, yes. He's confused his radicalism and his unionism and his meeting with Emma Goldman and assassinating McKinley and H.G. Wells. All this stuff is kind of jumbled up in his mind. So again, you can kind of get out of that psychologically. It's, it, I don't mean to say that that's a, it's, it was all a dream sort of thing, but I think the part of what Kessel is doing in that story is drawing, drawing a portrait of a disordered mind. If you allow that this new absurdism is new, right? And it's different from what's been done in the past. I suspect that there's, I'm just not thinking of a tradition of it and it ties in because it sounds like the kind of technique that, was, that has been done before, but still. Oh, I'm sure it If has. it's new, I'm... what 
impact or what effect do you think it has that makes it worth doing for someone who's writing? What, 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 what does it contribute? I'm guessing that the reason I'm using the term absurdism is I'm using that as something which I'm setting apart from fantasy, which has its own protocols, and science fiction, which has its own protocol. So that in terms of both of these novels, um, there, there's some gesture toward working out a system, but neither mm-hmm. novel resolves itself into a science fictional way of looking at the world or a or consistent fantasy system that I can uh, So to some extent, this enables you to do things in fantastic narratives that don't lapse into the science fiction camp on the one hand sure. or the fantasy camp on the other. And this is different from something like, let's say, what Michael Swanwick does when he combines mechanical mm-hmm. dragons with sorcerers and this sure. sort of thing. Putting fantasy and science fiction in the same novel is not the same thing as introducing this sort of absurdist thing is the only thing I can think of. Just anything you can think of, um, you can use as an engine of a novel. I wouldn't describe either of these novels as, as science fiction novels, although to some extent they both make use of some science fictional techniques. Um, in terms of looking at what this thing is that you think that you're seeing, um, is one of the characteristics of this non-real incursion into the story that it is never actually explained? Um I think so. I, yeah, I absolutely think so because explaining it makes it go away to some extent. Sure. It's like you know, it's, it's 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 like explicating a poem. We don't really want to know why these women turned into dragons, and by the end of the novel, we can understand we understand thematically what how this works in the story. Sure. But the, the question by the time you're done with her very powerful novel, you're thinking that's almost a simple-minded question. That's not the kind of thing we're concerned about anymore. Um, yes, unpacking that is not the exercise of the story. Exactly. It's the impact of it. Yeah, yeah, sure. So, for example, I'm watching right now a TV show on Amazon Prime called Outer Range where there is a sudden incursion into a the, the, the a, a, uh, <laughs> a field of a big open black hole that seems to just fall into something. It's a Western yeah. with a hole and in the middle. Literally. And at, whilst there is, there are, I suppose, deducible rules around this hole, it's never, well, so far, mm-hmm. it's yeah. not moved into a situation where it's explained. It's the impact of it on those who are, are aware that it exists that is the, that counts. And p- potentially, I don't know for sure, um, the, ex- ex- the ex- explanation of it is irrelevant to the story itself. Yeah, and I suspect I've seen the same thing. And there are clear hints of time slips and time travel and this sort of thing. Mm. Um, the kind yeah. of, okay, but, but you mentioned TV. And now that I think about it, um, I was, for some reason, thinking about the Twilight Zone. Oh, I know what it was. I know what it was. It's your fault, too, as a matter of fact. This is a complete parenthesis. This is your fault because your book, Someone hey. in Time, okay, caused me to watch it somewhere in time, the Christopher Reeve movie, written by Richard Matheson based on his own novel, which I remember having very fond memories of, even though the mm-hmm. Richard Matheson novel itself was somewhat borrowed from an earlier Jack Fenny novel. So, and I was listening to the theme music, which I'm st- still running in my head. But I was thinking Richard Matheson used to be very good at writing this completely absurdist sort of thing when he was writing for television. Um, mm-hmm. And... Even Serling was good. The extreme example of what I'm talking about in terms of absurdism probably would be a Twilight Zone episode whose title I don't remember, but anybody who watched the original series would recognize, about a group of characters trapped inside a huge circular space and they can't get out. And Mm -hmm. 
there's a, there's a soldier and there's a firefighter and there's a princess and there's a ballerina, a cop, whatever. And they're, they're trying to figure out how to get out. And they finally realize that if they stand on each other's shoulders, they can reach the rim of this thing and, and, and escape. And one of them does and falls out on the snow. And you realize they're in a uh, Salvation Army gift basket and they're all toys. They're all dolls. And they only mm-hmm. think they're real. Um, and that in itself was a version of an earlier one uh, where people who are mannequins uh, in a in, in a department store, don't realize they're mannequins, which now that I think about it, in turn was a variation of uh, John Collier's story called Evening Primrose. Mm-hmm. So Collier and Roald Dahl and the people who wrote The Twilight Zone would do this all the time. There is no way in terms of any kind of narrative tradition that you can make a bunch of dolls in a wastebasket into sentient beings, but they made a half hour thing out of it. And it it worked in exactly the same way as these theater of the absurd ideas worked. But if there's this modern absurdism in science fiction and fantasy yes, that you're talking yes. about, if that exists, and I'm not saying it doesn't, how is it different from that? How is it different from the uncanny slash twilight zone thing? Is it that that's not the tone that the story goes for, or is it sometimes that tone, do you think? I think it has to do with the fact that you can incorporate a, a, a conceit that could be a could be a short story. If you incorporate it into a novel, it becomes an element among many. In other words, um, I could see. I don't know. I don't know uh, anything about uh, Kelly Barnhill's short fiction. I could see the idea of women suddenly turning into dragons in the mid nineteen fifties as being the basis for a very witty short story. I don't yeah, see this is actually- how the. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I, but there's so much more than that in the novel. Um, there's there, Donald Barthelme wrote some stories like that. There's a story uh, called The Glass Mountain, in which there's a glass mountain in the middle of Manhattan, and the guy is climbing it using plumber's friends. Um, it's completely absurd, very funny, uh, and it's really rather touching at the end because you realize he's doing this for no reason other than to be doing something. I actually think it's a fair well, – I don't want to say typical uh, – a thing for Kelly Barnhill to do, but it's quite similar to what she did in the short story that she wrote for me for the Book of Dragons, where there is this sort of absurdist element that's dropped into mm-hmm. uh, a suburban setting, you know, um, and you're left sort of responding to that without ever really explaining it. So I'm not terribly surprised. It seems, to, and even if it's not typical of Kelly or Kelly's work over time, because I'm thinking now about another piece she's just done. It's, it's something she has done before. I mean, she's written a, a novella for me called The Crane Husband uh-huh. that is coming out from Tor.com. Uh, I've just seen the cover for it this week. It looks fantastic. And that, which is obviously, well, I think obviously is a, a take, a retelling, a variation on The Crane Wife, uh-huh. um, that has something similar. There's an injection of the unreal into the world. It's, it's not explained, but it has consistent behavior and it impacts the story. But so, yeah, that's not, not quite what you're doing. So but I guess, I guess what I'm saying is these are not, these are not part of a fantasy system. They're not necessarily part of a science fiction system. They are something external to the story itself, or, or in some cases, the entire story itself. And I, I no, the more I think about this, the more I think this is not uncommon in short fiction. Uh, Margot Landigan seems to do this quite a bit. I mean, Margot Lanigan has written a story about a shopping mall that gets fed up and decides to go and walk to the ocean yeah. for a swim. Um, I was just saying and, yesterday, someone should publish the best of Margot Lanigan. 
They absolutely should. Uh, and, and, and I see the, the writers that, do, that tend to do this uh, boldly tend to be doing it more in short fiction. I can think of it in Kelly Link. I can think of it in uh, some M. Rickert stories. Um, I suspect if I read more horror fiction than I do, and I'm completely out of date on short horror fiction, I suspect it happens fairly frequently in, in, in that field as well. Is there a, a set of rules that this sort of absurdism has to follow in order to function? You know, I find when I'm reading, I'm looking for a way to find my feet in the story that I'm, that I'm reading. I, I notice when I'm editing, if you're looking for science fiction, you're looking for logical rules and explanation of how the world works. In fantasy, if it's a contemporary world fantasy, you understand the structure of the world, but you're looking for the rules and structure behind the fantasy, uh, the magic, so that you understand why it works or what, what's, what's going to happen. And the right. same even in the secondary world fantasy, you need things laid up so it's explicable. Some of these kind of things, the stories you're sort of talking about, don't seem to necessarily follow that. They're not about explaining the world or explaining the rules. They're about unfolding the story around those. I think, yes, right? that's a good way of putting it. And then I'm going to guess that the thing that makes those wor- those stories work uh, are how well you've structured the, the character and the world responses to this around the core unknown element. I think that, the, uh, again, I'd make a distinction here between these two novels and what I've seen in short stories. I suspect, without going back and finding any evidence whatsoever to support this, that the stories focus largely on the point of view of certain characters. In other words, that these events are going to show us something about the mindset of the character, the behavior of the character, whatever, so that it, it, it fits in in some ways. What it doesn't do, what these things don't do really uh, in either of these novels or in most of the short stories I'm thinking about now, they don't reveal a system to you. Um, if, yeah. you if you see a dragon in fantasy, you fill in a lot of the blanks yourself. You, 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 you yeah. assume this is a world where dragons exist, but you don't fill in those blanks in the way that a science fiction reader would. Um, you don't fill in the blanks the way Anne McCaffrey did, for example. You say, well, <laughs> these are genetically engineered things and so forth and so on. You, but you expect to find a fantasy system behind the dragon or you, maybe a science fiction system behind the dragon. What you don't expect is that these dragons used to be suburban housewives. Do you think that there that this sort of thing is more common in different narrative traditions? The reason I ask is when you are talking about different things, one story that occurred to me was um, Han Song's very fine story, Submarines, which is, mm. in a, which you'll recall maybe from my year's best science fiction, yeah. which even though it's science fiction is somewhat in a way absurdist. You know, it's people spontaneously just living in submarines. When they go to sleep, they they they, they, they submerge their submarines, and I mean, it doesn't make any sense at all in a in a practical, real world sense. But it makes narrative sense in that story for the kind of point that Song obviously wants to make. Mm-hmm. And it, it it implies it implies that there is a world in which this makes sense, and it makes you think about that. But it doesn't. It doesn't imply enough to give you a whole backstory as to how this world came about and what the economics of it are. You tend, when you see an image like this in a story, uh, you tend either to accept it or not accept it, but you tend not to question it. <clears throat> yeah. you, you don't ask, uh, you, you, you don't really, throughout the book eaters, for example, you don't really, I didn't spend any amount of time asking, well, where did they really come from? You know, Are they really descended from aliens, which is hinted? 
That's not the point. The point is that they eat books. That's the beginning point. I guess the thing there is that makes it work as well. And I'm, I've not read the book eaters, though it sounds like an interesting book. This is the Brenda Peinado book. Uh, no, no, the book eaters is Sunyi Dean, I believe. Oh, sorry, yeah. Um, but okay. But the, the, for the book eaters, I'm going to guess that the key, one of the keys to making that conceit work in that way is that the the characters themselves aren't curious about it. In yes. other words, the world isn't curious about the incursion. It's accepted without question. And as long as it's accepted without question and the story isn't dependent on anything else, then it works. Um, yeah, I think that's part, of the, that's part of what I mean when I say it's a bold technique. You're, yeah. uh, it, it, it takes a certain amount of guts on the part of an author to do this. Sort of. And even though you may be thinking of the, a, a Brenda Peinado story, which I think was called The Rock Eaters, uh, which is in her oh, collection. Right, I am, yeah. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. that's exactly the same kind of thing, though. You know, people who simply consume yeah. rocks. Uh, it's, 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 and in that case, there's more of an implied culture around it. But the idea mm-hmm. of, well, you don't, you're not asking yourself, well, what kind of dentition did these people evolve with uh, in order to yeah. enable to do that? You, you don't yeah. ask, in other words, it's a way of short circuiting your expectations yet again. And what I'm yeah. thinking is uh, to broaden this discussion back to something reasonably coherent. I think that's a tendency we've seen in the last 10 or 15 years, and uh, maybe more than that. And that is to short circuit people's assumptions. If you assume, how, think of how many novels that you assume you're reading a fantasy novel and it's, well, maybe it's partly science fiction. Maybe these are necromancers. Maybe these are aliens. Maybe these are, um, no, or if, if, if you think you've got a fantasy world figured out, um, then somebody like, a Joe Abercrombie wants to pull the rug out from under you and show you that the world isn't quite what you thought it was earlier. Um, well, does Joe Abercrombie really mix genres? He doesn't mix genres. He mix genre, He's beginning to mix <clears throat> historical fiction with fantasy. By well, which that's I mean that's nothing new. That's been around forever. Well, yes and no. I mean, largely fantasy. Uh, fantasy history has been a, a pop culture version of history, medieval Europe, Renaissance Europe, uh, the idea, when, when I remember reading even 20 years ago or 30 years ago, whenever it was I read uh, John Ford's A Dragon Waiting, where, where so, suddenly this is a real historical event with fantasy working in that world, but it's not a fantasy world. Um, or for that matter, uh, Gene Wolfe's Shadow, not the Soldier of the Mist sort of thing. So in other words, the world is realistically seen from the point of view of somebody living in that world, and therefore what seems to us to be fantasy isn't fantasy from the point of view of the characters. I think with Abercrombie referring to a, a series that's a fantasy of the Industrial Revolution. Well, he's right? introducing the Industrial Revolution into a fantasy that we initially thought was going to be a fantasy of, of the, what, mid- to early Renaissance. Uh, in other mm. words, history is happening in his fantastic world. And one of the mm-hmm. things that always annoyed me about classical fantasy, about a lot of classical fantasy, was stasis, was the fact that these worlds seem to exist without any change over time at all. The, the medieval world went on forever. And I think that begins to be questioned. Brian Aldous wrote a kind of parody of that idea in <clears throat> the Malaysia Tapestry. He wrote about the city that never changes mm-hmm. at all. And his challenge there was to keep that novel from being completely boring because if nothing happens in the novel, how do you keep, well, it turns out that things do happen. But you see what I'm saying is that I kind of do. I mean, I'm, I'm trying to map this, this, this in my mind because I'm kind of going, okay, you have the, what, what, what you're call, calling in a way 
static fantasies, uh, fantasies that are set in uh, what we might call, let's say, pre-industrial settings. Yeah. So they don't, they're not dealing with an, uh, an enlightenment slash scientific way of thinking. Enlightenment is probably a bad example because Guy K obviously writes about that, right? Well, yeah. But uh, a science fictional way or a scientific way of thinking. Um, but then, right, how does that link into, say, the variant streams of urban fantasy where you're in the 20th century with a fantastic element involved um, and you have that scientific underpinning the world around you mm. with fantasy laid, laid on top of it? That's not what Abercrombie's doing, no, it's not when, he he's doing. Does, when he writes The Wisdom of Crowds and the rest of that series. Um, so how do you see that fitting in with this idea? This is, this is where I'm getting out of my comfort zone because this is where I think a lot of horror and supernatural fiction and urban fantasy, as you say, uh, what I think what Farrah Mendelssohn called in her book uh, Intrusive Fantasy, werewolves entering the world that is otherwise a completely realistic mm-hmm. representation of the 20th century or werewolves or vampires or werewolves and vampires um, or whatever those other things are that show up in underground from here from time to time. Um, that strikes me as being a large part of what horror is about, uh, is the intrusion of that other world into ours. That seems to me to be fiction that begins with some version of realistic fiction, of domestic fiction. The invasion of yeah. the domestic is what makes the story work. Um, yeah. And sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't. And again, when, when let's say when Stephen King decides he wants to offer a science fictional explanation for uh, for one of his demons, the the, uh, the the what's the one? Oh, with a spaceship out back, which changes everybody's behavior. Tommyknockers. Oh, yeah. um, when he yeah. tries, when he tries to turn one of his horror novels into a science fiction novel, it doesn't work. I mean, the the, the horror scenes are yeah. fine, but the science fiction just falls apart. The bolts fall out doesn't... of it, and the sides fall off. But that uh, partly uh, the question is that uh, an, an issue of the structure of the story. And the format of what's being done, or King's personal skill as a science fiction writer. Um, I think I don't think it has much to do with his skill as a science fiction writer, so much as his more or less lack of interest in actually doing the work of writing science fiction. Which is fair enough, I guess. It's fair I mean, enough. I mean, I got to start. Yeah. It, it, it's. I remember having a conversation with with uh, Tim Powers once, and Tim Powers is another writer mm-hmm. who does very interesting things with fantasy and history and so on. And he'd written one science fiction novel. He wrote Dinner at Deviant's Palace, which I thought was terrific. It was a very good science fiction mm-hmm. novel. And I asked him, why didn't you? And he was also somebody who you know was like a a protege of Philip K. Dick. So he grew up in the science fiction world. His first couple of novels were science fiction. And why didn't he come back to it? His answer was, it's too hard. It's too much work. You mm. have to think all these things through. You have to understand stuff that I don't want to have to understand. It was being very honest about it. Um, yeah, well, no, no. And it's perfectly legitimate to, to, to feel that way. I, I feel like across the 12 years of this podcast, we've talked about the new um, coming blurring of genres. Mm. And I've got to ask a really blunt question about it. If we've been talking about it for 12 years, is it still new? And second of all, is it actually interesting anymore? In, in the sense that I kind of feel like almost the interesting question, and I've had arguments with people who disagree with me, is mm. the what happens after the blurring? What does genre become? Does science fiction that's not simply echoing 1950s science fiction still have a form as being science fiction? Does fantasy still have a form? Does horror as, as a discrete thing? And if so, what is that? 
because I feel like the genres are pretty well blended. I don't think there's anything new happening. Well, I mean, that's why I thought that these absurdist things might be something new. But I think you're right. The idea that genres can borrow, and, and that's not entirely a new idea. I mean, even before this, I mean, back in the early 50s, Asimov was writing murder mysteries with robots and so forth. So when you talk about combining fantasy and science fiction and horror and blurring them all in the same story, that may be happening more often. I think it has, but, but this is where people, I think, misunderstand that the, the title of my book was Evaporating Genres, and people I found out misunderstood that. I didn't mean they're disappearing. Um, it, it, what I mean is that they're entering the general fabric of literature and culture. Hard science fiction, 1950s science fiction, David Brin, Gregory Benford science fiction is still being written. They're still writing it. It's still out there. Yeah. None of that is, in other words, you're not required to blend genres. People still publish classic heroic fantasies with dragon quests and so do, forth. Yeah. And, I mean, isn't this the stuff that was being published in Uncanny Stories back in the 40s and 50s? Is it that extent, much different from something like Heinlein's The Man Who Traveled in Elephants? Uh, well, one of the things that um, supposedly led Campbell to start Unknown Worlds magazine was the fact that some of his favorite writers, like Liber, and I think uh, L. Ron Hubbard, and I think probably, uh, um, I'm trying to think of Frank, Eric Frank Russell, were writing science fiction. They were coming up with ideas that were completely fantasy ideas, but working them out in science fictional terms. And I think he, that Campbell wanted to draw that line. He wanted. He was yeah. one of the early enforcers of, you know, this is science fiction, this is not. So he started this magazine partly, uh, and people can check Alec Neville Ali's book to see if I'm right, partly to drain off the stories that his writers were sending so he wouldn't have to publish them in Astounding. So, for example, you have mm -hmm. a Jack Williamson story called Darker Than You Think, which is a werewolf story. Uh, there's a little bit yeah. of hand-waving about science fictional rationales for werewolves, but it's a werewolf story. Um, and Fritz Leiber's, uh, you know, Fafford and the Grey Mouser stories are uh, set in kind of the same uh, dark, barbaric world as, as the Conan stories. Um, but at the same time, they were kind of con man, uh, part of the great American con man traditions of stories, trickster tradition. Um, yeah, yeah. So, 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 yeah, you're right. That kind of blending has been going on all along. Uh, and my point is that I think there's less resistance to it. Now, I don't think you have an editor like John W. Campbell, who, among his many other sins, which have been documented in all kinds of ways, was also a gatekeeper. He wanted to define science fiction in a very specific way, and it was what he bought yep. for his magazine. Um, and there were a lot of writers that got rejected by him for that reason. I don't think you have any editors these days who are that kind of gatekeepers at all, or even want to be. Yeah, I don't know that anybody wants to be. Certainly everybody's been told often enough it's a bad thing for a start. Second yeah. of all, the field is too, I mean, really has during my life, or well, my career in fact, atomized completely in my in my opinion so the ability for a single editor or uh edit, group of editors to shape well, the field should they want to and do something as arrogant as that i don't think they could i can't think of a you know sort of, sort of even if you go back if you go back to like 80 1980 1985 mm -hmm. right about 1985 most of the genre short fiction seemed the editors of the time uh, had the ability to control and shape the field to some degree, uh, added on to by Omni. I mean, and certainly there are those who would make an argument, and it's not a totally flawed argument, that for a chunk of time, say, Gardner Dozois was 
able to shape the field as he wanted to. Uh, if, if only, in fact, not out of any nefarious intent, but because his magazine was the one that most people seemed to want to get into. And so they're writing stories they thought he would like. And so his taste became dominant, which is a more passive mm. way of doing the same thing that Campbell was doing. Um, but well, I don't think he, could, he also I don't had, think it, he had this mm-hmm. longest series of year's best anthologies ever. So he got two shots. Well, that's how he got to affirm his own selection. Well, that's how he got to reaffirm his own sele- his own yeah. opinion, if you like. Um, but I don't think that, you know, uh, Neil Clark at Clark's World, I don't think that Sheila Williams at Asimov's, I don't think that, you know, uh, Lynn and uh, Damien Michael Thomas at Uncanny or whomever actually could, if they so chose, sh- to shape the kind of stories that people are going to respond to now i think that's that's gone as a as a possibility and it's not something that i think is lamented by anybody in any serious way not the least because i don't know anybody who's got an idea of what they want to shape it into which more or less puts science fiction and fantasy or the whole fantastical world in the same position as literature has always been in other words to some extent uh you know you could try to you could make an argument over a period of time that the New Yorker shaped the mainstream American short story over a period of decades, and it may have. I mean, certainly there was a shift in the 50s when they started getting J.D. Salinger's. Uh, mm-hmm. But at the same time that they were doing that, this people people think that, okay, the New Yorker was shaping a certain kind of New York literary voice. At the same time, Collier's Magazine was publishing Heinlein and Jack Finney, and the Saturday Evening Post was publishing uh, fiction. I think the Post may have published a Heinlein story. They published a Bradbury. So in other words, there have always been multiple voices. The difference is yeah. that uh, that they were they were addressing different audiences. Uh, and it's 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 not just that science fiction and fantasy and and, and horror are, are, are merging together. Everything is merging together. It's there's no longer really any such thing as uh, the mainstream short story. The mainstream mass circulation. No. populist short story that the Saturday Evening Post or Collier's oh. used to publish. Um, there, there, there simply isn't. I mean, the New Yorker still has some influence. Magazines like Conjunctions have some influence, oh. but within very limited areas. Nothing, I think, really has a national influence anymore. And all that means is that you know our world has suddenly become like the rest of the literary world. Nobody owns it, nobody runs it, nobody's in charge. Yeah, um, well, except, I would say very strongly, there are those people who would argue that you're wrong because whilst there doesn't seem to be anybody trying to gatekeep in the same way, we are still pushing up against very hard boundaries for uh, writers from different backgrounds or whatever else. If you're from outside North America, if you are uh, BIPOC, if you are LGBTQI+, it is genuinely still harder to get involved in this. Now, your argument might be, and it would have merit if it was your argument, that there's probably not much greater barrier to anyone getting into science fiction and fantasy than any other element of society. Yeah. And that may be true. That may be true. And I know writer, and, and we both know editors who are actively seeking out the new writers who are coming, who are appearing sure. from, from South Asia or Southeast Asia or Africa or... Uh, Interestingly enough, when all, all the discussions, uh, except for one or two anthologies, I've not seen a lot of discussion about South American fantasy and science fiction. I know Libby Ginway had written a very good book about Brazilian science fiction. I know there's an active world there. But just tell me, because you're involved in editing, we're seeing everything from every place in the world, and I'm not seeing a lot of new South American science fiction and fantasy appearing in American anthologies. right out of the box, 
right out of the box. You are pointing at one of the problems with any two people talking about this because there was a major young adult science fiction Latinx anthology published at the beginning of this year. There have ah. been one or two around over the past two years. There's a new one, a new uh, mainstream Latinx uh, science fiction anthology coming out during the year. So they're around. I saw Cosmos and then there, Latinos and, a few years ago, yeah. And I know there's an also, active field going on there. Also, some of the writers that are, and there are more than you, than, than you would say, I'm not going to bother going through names, but they are absorbed maybe, I suppose, into the whole BIPOC kind of uh, look of things. So when you go like, how many new BIPOC writers are coming in? And yeah. the writers coming in from Asia, the writers coming from Africa, right. the writers coming in from South South America, or there are Latinx writers who are in North America who have historical connection to South America mm -hmm. or elsewhere. So and I the think they're there. Too. And I think, in fact, I would say you only have to look at the prominence of the Latinx promotion uh, thing that they did at Worldcon a couple of years ago that um, John Picasso organized right. to show that that's there. So I think it actually is there. Now, could it des does it deserve more attention? Sure. Um, I mean, one of the problems with BIPOC as a acronym, and in fact, with LGBTQIA plus ah. as a acronym, is it runs together similar things that aren't actually the same, you know? Um, African science fiction and fantasy um, is not exactly the same as African diaspora science fiction and fantasy. Well, for that matter, um, African science fiction and fantasy is uh, by yes. now, and I've learned this thanks uh, thanks partly to the uh, conversation we had with Ogena Choi Donalek Pecky. It's it's what how it's it's dozens of different cultures writing different kinds of science fiction. And again, when I said South American science fiction, I was doing the same thing. I was thinking specifically about Brazil. Uh, but but yeah, there is this tendency which we're I think gradually overcoming to think of a whole continent as generating a certain kind of science fiction. Uh, we yeah. don't we no longer talk about Asian science fiction, but we do talk about South Asian science fiction partly because that's a handful of countries. They're cultures interact no, in a way that... I don't I don't think that's strictly true I think because it's us and by this this us I mean Jonathan and Gary talking because it's ah. Jonathan and Gary looking at a phenomenon we're looking at it through a particular lens at any given yes. time and so what has made us think about South Asian science fiction and fantasy which I have to say, whilst I had thought about Indian science fiction and Pakistani science fiction and Sri Lankan science fiction and Bangladeshi science fiction, I hadn't particularly thought about South Asian, were the uh -huh. two anthologies that Tarun K. Saint edited for Golans in India, right? Mm -hmm. Those put out to me, at least as a reader, the idea of a concept of a South Asian. Uh, now, it may be a little different for yourself, I don't know, but I kind of feel like that's the lens that creates that. I think it's true, and I think there are things that we simply don't see unless somebody explains to them. I mean, for example, uh, Usman Malik, who very deservedly won the Shears Crawford Award for his collection, Midnight Doorways, had only been published in Pakistan. And just a couple of weeks ago, he, an, he, he announced that Hachette India was publishing an Indian mm -hmm. edition. Now, from the point of view of a North American, the importance of getting an Indian edition of a Pakistani book represents a kind of cultural victory that I don't personally have any understanding of. But it clearly means that it's kind of a breakout. There's a there's some relationship between Pakistan literature and Indian publishing that I don't know about. 
that Usman has somehow broken through with this, I think. I may not I may be completely wrong about that. Um, I would not have any expertise, but we're, yeah. we, we are unaware of the nuances, and I'm perfectly... Well, I, mean, I can really... give you an example of a similar nuance, though, Gary. Mm. I can definitely give you an example of a similar nuance. Some years ago, you and I traveled to Montreal in Canada, mm. and there we were in Quebec, and I remember talking to some of the Quebecois writers there about uh, publishing their experience and yeah. whether they could get their works published in France since they were publishing in something very very close to French anyway. Yeah. And it turns out that apparently there's an enormous prejudice against publishing Quebecois writing in France, which I was totally unaware of. So obviously there right. are all these kinds of sensitivities, because I'm a little white Australian and you're stuck in North America, you don't see these different um, perspectives. I mean, it's just like, the other the other year, like last year, there was a huge controversy within Australian science fiction that I don't particularly want to re revisit. Other than to say, someone mm. had used the used the uh, the term of the dreaming in a title of wow. theirs, and it was hugely controversial in a way that I don't think anybody outside of Australia would appreciate because there are some things you just don't touch and don't do, and the author ended up changing the title of the book for you know when it was brought brought to their attention. But those kind of sensitivities are local, and I'm sure, well, it feels like it's less likely to be true of anything in the United States, because the United States just blasts its culture at the entire English-speaking world, well, I mean, like the legends of the head 24-7. You mentioned that true, but, but at, at the same time, there are uh, the, the issue with indigenous writers is as much and has been historically as much. In, the, in our field, Stephen Graham Jones has begun to address it. I think there was a controversy a few years ago about using the concept of the ghost dance, for example, uh, in, mm -hmm. in some kind of a Western. And the whole idea of, the whole idea of, of, of sensitivity reads, of understanding perspectives, uh, has gotten much more sophisticated, but it's always been there. I mean, it was an issue yeah. with the, uh, I think, with the Navajo Nation uh, in inviting, I believe, the mystery author Tony Hillerman because they believed that he had done his homework in his mysteries. Um, so he became, I think, an honorary something or uh, but my, my point to get back to editors is that mm. while you mentioned the editors of classic science fiction who could choose to be gatekeepers if they chose to and most of them many of them did today i think there may be editors out there who are gatekeepers most of the editors i know including yourself are looking for new voices or looking for new perspectives and i think you should be and the reason i think you should be and i've argued this before is that an old story becomes new when you re reimagine it from a new perspective. I think that's true for a start. I will say as well, I always wonder in these kind of discussions, because I think they play out in other areas, and a very similar one is rock and roll. Uh, I imagine that uh, uh, fantastic cinema would be sim similar. And yeah. that is, you're talking about moving from something that happened at the original cliff face of something to now. Uh, mm -hmm. I understand science fiction has a long history and we could go back to where it starts and we could go around that for, for ages. But if you're talking about North American science fiction, and particularly commercial North American science fiction, it has at best its origins in the 1920s, right? Yeah. And if it's originating in the 1920s and Campbell is editing in the 1930s, you know, the late 1930s, you're still pretty close to the point of origin for the whole thing you're literally forming it as you go as well so that kind of you know, manipulation and creation 
is to some degree part of that origin origin process. Now, a hundred years later, we're nowhere near that. You know, that's been done. I don't think you could choose to. I mean, even if even if even if you had even if Elon Musk gave you Twitter money and told you to go and change the face of science fiction, I don't think you could. You couldn't. No, nobody has that kind of authority. Any- I don't think anybody、oh. wants to, but I don't think you could. I, and I think it's kind of it's a, in a sense reflecting on a historical aber- aberration that makes us think so. The other thing that reinforces the idea, I think, is the fact that there are, if you like, practical gatekeepers as opposed to the kind of gatekeeper、mm. that Campbell, in, in a way, was. Campbell was looking for a particular kind of thing. The people who are acquiring fiction, either from New writers or established writers at publishing houses or at magazines are, by their nature, gatekeepers. They're saying yes or no.、Yeah. You know, if you send me a novella and I'm reading it for Tor.com and I say yes or no, that's an act of gatekeeping. It may not be, I hope, and 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 try to make it so,、uh, a constructivist form of gatekeeping, or I try to manipulate what Tor.com, you know. Acquire, but it's nonetheless gatekeeping. So there's gatekeeping there, and I think part of the talk in this space is writers coming up against trying to get their own work published, irrespective of where they come from or what it is. So there's just that there is an element of gatekeeping that's possibly un- unavoidable. Well, the, the,、um, the but it's not that kind of the Campbellian style. That's why they call it editing. I mean, at some basic level, editing a magazine or a a, a line of books. Means accepting things and rejecting other things.、Uh, there's, I mean, I've, I've edited a few things, and at some point there is gatekeeping, not based on who the author is or what the subject is, but simply based on what you perceive to be the quality of the work and possibly how it enters into the the conversation these days. You、mm. must see. I mean, any editor must see stories that simply aren't competent. And oh, sure. Sure, and as a reader, I appreciate then, you're not then, giving them to me. But then, on the other hand, there's also you just don't like something,、oh. right?、Uh, I've been sent stuff, and I just don't like it. And sometimes it's harder to be clear on this. Sometimes you can see that it's good, and you don't like it. And sometimes you just don't like it. Yeah, I mean, well, and that's why also, it's important to have an array of of editors as well, right? Oh yeah, you know. So like, if I edit, if I if you send me a novella for Tor dot com. I can't reject it for Tor.com. I can only reject it for me. Yeah, well, that makes sense. That's what an editorial collective is supposed to do, I suppose.、Um, well, I mean, but- there are, if you like, levels of editor at Tor. So there's the the permanent employees of Tor, and then there's the consulting editors. Well, and yeah. And consulting editors can't outright reject. Whereas, if like if you submit it to the main office and they reject, then you're done. But、uh, if you send it to a consulting editor, you can go to another consulting editor or get a one time chance to submit it to the main office. Separate issue. Mm. And, and again, there's there there are reasonable、um, re- uh, reasonable reasons. That's a wonderful tautology. There are reasons why、uh, two or three.、Uh, let's say somebody wants to write another.、Uh, I don't know lesbian necromancer series of space operas. Wouldn't most editors today say those were really good, but we already read them? No. No. No,、really? I don't think they would. I think it would depend. What kind? Here's the thing, right? Lesbian necromancer in space doesn't set tone or character. It only tells you a few things. Okay, that's so, true. And we've really only had one lesbian necromancer in space series. Well, it's not like it's you know sort of、uh, soft porn werewolf novels. 
right? We've had a few of okay. those. But you know, your lesbian necromancer in space, I could see you doing a more hard science fictional version, a less gothic version, and you'd pr- probably be able to get a couple of those published, particularly if they're not. I mean, obviously, you know, for clarity, you're referring to the Locked Tomb series that Tamsin Muir writes. Yeah, we're talking about the and Tamsin not, Muir. Yeah, Gideon the Ninth and uh, Nona the Ninth and thing. But here's uh, my if sense not, also. You know, uh, go. I'm sorry. Finish your thought. Just that if, if, it's, if it's not that tone, they're different. So tell me what you were going to say. What I was going to say is that my sense uh, is that uh, unlike some writers of the past who saw themselves as pulp writers, who saw themselves as professionals surveying the field, figuring out what was needed, most writers wouldn't want to rewrite a different version of Tamsin Muir's. Uh, they wouldn't no, want to do that. They wouldn't want to do Rebecca Quang's series. Uh, writers want to be different. And that's one difference because one of the, one of the rules of, uh, of pulp writing, as I understood them back in the 30s and 40s, is that you wanted to be a little bit different, but basically the same over and over <clears> and over uh, so, so that's true, and 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 there are. This is one of the reasons I think we're getting bolder moves uh, among yeah. writers. It was it was a bold move, what, forty or fifty years ago now for Anne McCaffrey to to make science fiction dragons. It's not a big deal anymore. Uh, it, it, it's, so, in order to get that kind of effect, it brings us almost back to what we started with. You need to do something really dramatically absurd to get the attention of the idea behind. Uh, when women were dragons is a stunningly ridiculous idea, and the fact that she makes it work is what makes the novel even more stunning. So I, I, I think that the idea of originality—I mean, look at uh, oh, one of our mutual favorites uh, of the last couple of years, Alex Harrell. Um, her fiction, uh, starting with Ten Thousand Doors of January, everything introduces a fairly new idea. And 10,000 Doors of January is kind of a biblio-fantasy, which is the thing that's coming back to. It's there with the book eaters. But when she does the Once and Future Witches, it's a different thing again. And when she's re-examining fairy tales, it's a different thing again. I see fewer and fewer writers these days, and I may be wrong because I'm not seeing manuscripts sent in. I see fewer writers wanting to do the same thing over and over again or wanting to do what appears to be popular. I, I just I get a sense. I think terrible judges of that, Gary. Well, we could be. I think you and I and the people at Locus, which is the context that we're in for this, mm. are terrible judges because I don't think we read a lot of fiction where you have an ongoing okay. series that people find uh, rewarding and enjoyable and continue and want to read book eight or 12 or 15 or 20. Criticism um, of one or two exceptions, yeah. you know. And so I think that still is very much a thing. Um mm. You know, uh, I, I will stand. I will stand not, corrected on that because I'm not one of those readers. And well, I, I mean, with, I mean, with, I, with that, those readers, you and I are both readers who are a particular sort of odd variant on science fiction reader. Where science fiction readers and well, science fiction and fantasy readers who read to talk about it, to say something about it in public, and so there is a drive for novelty a drive away from repetition that is perhaps stronger. You're less likely to say, I want to read the 21st foreigner book by CJ Cherry and more likely to say, I've read that. I mean, I've, and reviewers have said this to me at Locus. I read the first book. I know the idea for the rest of them. I don't need to read them at all. And you're going, I still need to re- get them covered for the, the magazine. Yeah. And they're going, yeah, but I don't want to read them anymore. There are a couple of quite high profile series right now that I'm struggling to find reviewers for because our reviewers, I've said, 
I get the idea. I don't need to read anymore. I want to read something different. Well, some of that is a search for novelty, though. Some of that is looking for something mm-hmm. new. And, and you're right. There, there are comfort readers. And this is, again, not this is not an attack on people who like 20 and 30 volume no. epic fantasies or, or people who I want the military space. So, yeah. Um, I mean, my, I had a sister-in-law who who's a huge fan of uh, Agatha Christie. And all she wanted to read was Agatha Christie. Um, and she didn't mind the repetition at all. When, when Christie's novels would be reissued in a different title in the United States, you know, she would have read Murder in the Calais Coach. And five years later, she reads Murder on the Orient Express, which is the American title. And she barely remembers that she read it five years earlier. It didn't bother her at all. She wants that experience. That's a different kind of experience reading. I used to read... Uh, Spencer Mysteries by Robert Parker. And they got to the point where the mystery was barely there at all. Um, but you're mm. reading for a kind of fix. You like the dialogue, you like the smart, you like the characters, and you just want to spend time with them. I, I can understand by the, that. But by the time you get to the 15th Travis McGee novel. Yeah, exactly. Right. You've, you've pretty much figured it out, but it's like, oh, we'll have Travis over for drinks again. We've waffled almost to the end of our waffling. I was just going to say quickly, things we've been reading right now that we might mention to the listeners from May. First of all, I read a brilliant short story since I spoke to you last. Mm-hmm. You'd hope more than one, but I read one. It appears that Maureen McHugh is writing more at the moment. She's had a couple of stories out this year. There's a story, The Goldfish Man, a mm. six and a half thousand word short story published at Uncanny, huh. which is spectacularly wonderful. It's a fabulous story. It's one of these stories that appears to have very small stakes and doesn't really lay out what it's going to do until you get to the last line. The story, a, a near future story about a home, uh, well, a, a woman who's near homeless and mm-hmm. someone she encounters and what happens. And the entire story lives on the last line, which is, I think, perfect. So there's that. And I'd strongly recommend mm-hmm. Go and Find the Goldfish Man by Maureen McHugh. Every year's best should be carrying it. I'm also reading two novels at the moment, uh-huh. which is never a great thing for me. I'm reading a debut science fiction novel in the old school of science fiction novels, where it's like just straight science fiction, uh, a hard science fiction novel, uh, a generation ship uh, story called Breaking Day by Adam Oyabanji, hmm. uh, which has come out from, uh, I think it's Door in the US and... Uh, Joe Fletcher books in the UK. And, you know, it's a really entertaining, solid book about a a young engineer on a generation ship that's reaching the point where it's going to flip over before it decelerates to Mm -hmm. uh, its final destination and some other things. So there's that. And I'm also reading, um, because uh, Ian Mond of the pod of the, of Locus had said it was probably going to be the best book he'd read all year. Devil House by John Darnell, uh-huh. which is fantastic so far. It's really great. Um, so, yeah. And I've got a few things to read. I've got my copy of When Women Were Dragons here to read as well. And so, yes. What are you reading at the moment, G? Well, I just, I, 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 like I said, I just finished uh, The Book Eaters, which is, is, is fascinating. Uh, and I was reading, um, I was reading a couple of stories for some reason, I, I don't know why I get some of these books, but uh, uh, Ellen Dadlow's forthcoming collection of monster stories, which... Screams in the Dark? Screams in the Dark, had a Jeff Ford story in it. And here, here's another writer, a very literary writer, uh, 
not afraid at all to introduce completely absurd ideas into a story. This is, this is one of his stories which I think are increasingly fascinating. Since he moved to essentially rural Ohio, um, uh, he's been writing stories with more autobiographical elements. And this is, this is a kind of horror slash comic fantasy about living in uh, rural Ohio in, in, in Trump's America. And it's very effective. But again, I'm, th- there are writers like that who I just, I'm almost never disappointed by. And, yeah. and this is another yeah. one. I haven't, read, I haven't read many of the other stories in the, that collection. Okay. And I'm not so, reading so that the... collection for, for, for a review because it's not my bailiwick. It's a horror collection. I have to, mm. I have to catch up yeah. with horror uh, in between the cracks because it's, it's not what I do. Like you have to mm-hmm. take your, you have to take your opportunities to read novels when you can because you're reading so much short fiction. I have to take the I'm reading less these days, as you know. So, yeah. Yeah. Well, I've got some interesting things on the pile. I'm not exactly sure. There's a new novel coming out by Ari Lim- Limberg in, a, in, a, in their Birdverse, uh, which I think is not out until September. Uh, Kate Hartfield sent a novel, uh, which I've not started yet, but apparently she's listened the to the ta- podcast. The Tapestry book? The, the tapestry the, book or something like that? Yes, right. That's it. Um, and uh, very, very generous because apparently Kate listens to the podcast. Hi, Kate. Uh, I'm looking forward to It's a to book that. we should cover. Mm-hmm. It's a book we should cover. Definitely. I've heard only good things, Gary. Speaking of only good things, since you're now getting into just books that are coming out rather than books you're reading, ah. we have been corresponding with the good people at Shycon 8, as you know, Gary. Mm because I will actually be flying all the way to uh, the United States in August uh, to attend ShyCon in, in early September, uh, where everyone will mask, so I won't be able to hear what they're saying. Hmm. And um, it looks as though it's promising that for the first time in six, eight years, I think we'll be able to do a live Cood Street podcast. It'll be wonderful. For those people who don't remember, I think the last one we did was with Kelly Robson and, no, we did one with Kelly Robson and Walter John Williams, I believe. Was that Kansas or was that before? I mean, I have to go looking. It's terrible that I don't remember exactly, but yeah, I don't, it's we, been we, a while we, anyway. Yeah, we, we, had, we had one years ago with Joe Walton and Robert Silverberg, and we had another with uh, Michael Swanwick and Kids Johnson talking about... Uh, classic short story which was when it changed We've always meant to go back to yeah but we're waiting to see who actually has decided a number of people i've talked to are still deciding whether to come to chicago yeah, or not. i hope everybody will come i know that some won't i had an interaction with um scott edelman who was saying he wasn't coming because of the change to masking rules and masking rules are very much a personal decision these days i think and you can only respect that people uh, you know, if everybody's not masking, don't want to travel or they do or whatever, that's just mm-hmm. how it is. Um, I mean, I think you have to respect that. Certainly, it's, I know I understand you were saying that Chicago, Shycon, has it will maintain its masking mandate throughout the whole convention. They've which decided, means... to, yeah. Uh, a, a number of people were concerned. A number of people have been saying on uh, this Discord discussion group that uh, they bought their membership, bought their, made their reservations on the assumption that the mask mandate was there as announced. And they were very concerned that the mask mandate might be lifted. Somebody on the local committee reassured them that there's no intention to lift the mask mandate. The warning uh, that people need to understand is that the mask mandate does not exist in the city of Chicago. And even though the convention may have a mask mandate, 
the restaurants and bars and so forth. And in other words, I don't believe the convention can force the hotel to uh, to 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 yeah. uh, to do a mask mandate if the hotel doesn't want to. Uh, and for that oh, matter, totally, yeah. You know, when you go out to restaurants and this sort of thing. I, I will say one thing, just as a minor footnote, and I don't want to discourage anybody. I think people who remember the wonderful shopping along Michigan Avenue from the 2012 Chi-Con might be a little surprised at how much devastation uh, COVID it's has caused for some, of the, yeah. some, some of the retail businesses. Yeah. Well, I don't expect anybody to remember, but from my own perspective, because of my hearing loss from Meniere's disease, I will struggle to he- to understand anything anyone with a mask on says. I was actually at a convention yesterday, uh, SwanCon, which was enjoyable, oh. uh, but I lost 70% of what anybody was saying to me just because of that. And that's my issue, and I don't expect anybody to not uh, mask because of it, but it does mean it'll be exponentially harder and if 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 you come up to me at at shycon and you say hello and i kind of look at you a bit blankly that may mm-hmm. be why so yeah anyway well, i think we've done our hour gary we should get out and let these people uh get on with their day we've probably embarrassed ourselves enough for one night and we'll uh we'll start talking about what an we'll start talking thing. Okay. Again. well we oh. keep meaning to but we don't never quite gel and we get so we do have to that yes i don't know who's right somebody okay until then all right Until then, this has been the Coot Street Podcast.